This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining us in just a minute will be our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. This has been an interesting week around Rio Vista Community Church. Our entire ministry staff have been taking a week-long course on biblical counseling. So Sam and I weren't really able to work out a schedule for recording this week. However, this is week five of Desiring the Kingdom, our series of messages from First and Second Kings, which is being preached right now at Rio Vista Community Church. This week is First Kings chapter 6, and as it happens, Sam preached the message this past Sunday. He did a fantastic job, honestly. It was a terrific explanation of the temple and all of the symbolism of the various parts of the temple as he sort of takes us on a walk into the temple from the very outside, the altar that's at the outside, to the Holy of Holies, all the way at the center of the temple, explaining along the way the significance of each thing in the temple. And after he preached the message, I said, Sam, honestly, I don't know what we can add. (laughs) That was really good. So Sam being away this week and him having preached the message on the chapter we would be talking about, We're just going to take the audio from this past Sunday's sermon and repurpose it as a podcast. So if you were there on Sunday or if you've listened to the sermon on Sunday, well, then you get to hear it a second time. And hopefully you'll pick up some things this time that maybe you didn't even catch the first time around. Or if you choose, um, you can have a week off and we'll see you with a a fresh episode next week when Sam and I will be talking about First Kings chapter seven and eight. So without further ado, preaching on 1 Kings chapter 6, talking about the symbolism of the temple from this past Sunday at Rio Vista Community Church, here is Pastor Sam Kastensmith. All right, good morning, Rio Vista. Well, my name is Sam Kastensmith, and I'm a pastor uh, on staff here, Um, and it's such a great privilege to come before you and to share the Word of God Uh, And if you've done your personal worship, you know that we're moving into a section of the scriptures uh, that deals with the temple. Solomon is going to construct the temple of God. And in 1 Kings chapter 6, we come across all these details. And usually, if you're being honest, when you get to this in your devotional reading, You know, it's like Leviticus, you just kind of skip right past because you're like, I don't care how many gemstones and cubits and everything else. But this is really profound. The building of the temple, when we read through and we see what it is that Solomon is constructing, it's really easy for us to stop and ask the question, what possible relevance Can this temple built 3,000 years ago, what possible relevance can that have on my life today? And I want to say a lot, actually. When you see the design that God was putting into place when he gave Solomon the instructions for the, the temple and Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, which are similar, you see the sovereignty of God and what his heart is for you and me. It's amazing. 
So in this sermon, I want to examine three things. First, I want to look at the meaning behind the temple. Why does God give us this? Why does he give the instructions? Why does he put all the furniture where they belong? Then I want to look at the worship practices at the temple because that's going to give us context for something that I think is one of the most beautiful things you can find in Scripture, and that is this, how Jesus Christ fulfills all of the temple, all of the purposes of the temple, everything about the temple, Jesus fulfills for you. It's stunning. So to understand the meaning of the temple, we first need to go back into the beginning. And God dwelled with man and woman in this perfect place. There was no fear. There was no hatred. There was no angst. There was no all of the emotions where we're like, oh, this world is so hard. All of it just in perfect peace. And then man decided, I want the throne. And we spat in the face of God and we said, I want to be in control. And there were real consequences to that. God, before expelling us from the Garden of Eden, from that perfect intimacy and union in his presence, slaughtered an animal and took the clothing, the skin of that animal, and clothed Adam and Eve so tenderly, even though he's about to present his holy judgment, he clothes them. And then he puts them outside of the temple And Genesis 3 says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You think, okay, we're talking about the temple, Sam. Why are you bringing up Eden? Well, really, really simply, the construction of Solomon's temple is the first time In history, since Eden, that God has chosen a specific location where he is going to come down and dwell in the midst of his people. And the way that the temple is constructed, this picture will show you what Solomon's temple would have looked like back in his day. And there's going to be a lot of images, so prep yourself. But this is the way that you would walk in. You would come up from the east. Hint, hint, man was expelled to the east. And then you would come into the temple courtyards and then you would go inside the temple proper. And you know what was all over the temple when you walked in it? Images of palms, images of fruit, flowers, amazing, and images of cherubim everywhere. What is it communicating? I want to dwell in your midst, but you cannot come near me where I dwell. You're at arm's length. You're sinful. You're defiled. You have to stay out. And so the the format, the layout of the temple followed the same as the format of the tabernacle, which you see here in this image. You would come in from the east, and there you would have the altar of the sacrifice, which is where you would sacrifice the animals. Then you would come a little bit further, and that was the bronze laver where you would clean up, and then you would go inside the actual structure of the tabernacle or the temple, and there were components in there. There was a table of showbread, which we'll get to a little bit in a minute, a golden lampstand, an altar of incense that sent up smoke, and the priests could go that far. When you get to Solomon's temple, there's all these ways of dividing people out. 
You've got a court of the Gentiles. You've got a court of the women. You've got a court of the priest. And only certain priests could come inside the actual structure to perform their duties. But man, you could not. None of those priests minus one, the high priest, only one man could go into the Holy of Holies and once a year to seek the atonement for the sin of the people of God. Once a year, one man. And so I want to walk through the temple and be charitable. Hang with me because it's beautiful. When you came in to the altar, it's like you were coming closer toward Eden if you were allowed. I'm a Gentile. I wouldn't have been allowed. But back then, when you come in, the first thing that you come to is the bronze altar. This massive altar that's out front of the temple. And by the way, it's the first thing you come to when you come into the presence to worship God at the temple. Why in the world would the bronze altar be the first thing where they sacrificed animals? And let's be honest, when you think of any religion or any culture that sacrifices animals, what's the first thing you think of? That's pretty primitive. I'm so, I'm so glad that, that we're so enlightened that we don't do sacrificial systems anymore. And I want to stop for a moment. We're no more sophisticated than Solomon and his people. We worship a sacrificed man. When you come to the temple and you hit that bronze altar, it's God's way of saying, before you step any closer, before you can come in authentic worship, this is the moment where you need to decide, are you coming on your own? Do you think that you're good enough in your own merits to come before me? No. Those who come before me are those that recognize they cannot save themselves. They can't atone for all the sins and all the baggage and all the disruption and crazy things they've done in their life. They recognize they're broken. They can't fix themselves. They can't pay the penalty of sin for themselves. Something outside of myself has to atone for me. If you can't get that far, you can't get any further into the temple. You need an atonement. And it's not just goats and bulls and lambs that we look to as our atonement. It is the very Son of God become a man. Think what that says to us. That should humble us in our seats. Why? God is simultaneously saying, so brace yourself, this is going to be hard to hear. God comes to you with the gospel. The fact that the Son of God became a man and died on a cross for you. He's saying you are so broken, you required the death of God. That's how messed up I am. I required the death of God to fix me. This is no small project. I'm not just a little broken. My rebellion against God, my sinfulness, my selfishness, my self-absorption, the way that I go around trying to replace God at every turn and war for his throne, it required the death of God to atone for me and make me right, to pay the penalty of that sin. And I want to stop because there's a real easy way that we want to go and we go, oh, I'm so bad. I did that. No, the cross humbles us. We need that altar. 
But at the same time, you can't grovel and go, oh, I'm so bad. Why? Because when God looks at you, he says, you're worth it. He joyfully goes to the cross to redeem you, to purchase you to himself so that he could be with you forever. You can never atone for it. You can't work hard enough. You can't be good enough. You're free. God has paid the penalty. Because you're that precious to him. Do you get why you need an altar? And praise God, he gave his life for us. And so after you go to the altar, you come to the next piece of furniture, which is the bronze seer, the bronze laver. And this is where you got cleaned up. What do you hear in that? If you're not given your life to Christ because you think to yourself, I'm not good enough for that yet. Do you get what God's doing here? The atonement has to happen before the cleansing comes. You've got to go before him and say, I can never fix myself. I need blood spilled for me to forgive my sins. And then, after that, oh, then you go about the cleansing. The blood is shed before you get cleaned up for God. I remember before I became a Christian, that was a big stumbling block for me. Like, I'm not good enough. I've got these addictions. I've got, I can't give that up. I, I'm still doing this and that and the other. And I, I, I don't want to be one of those boring Christians. I'm not ready for that. So I'm going to push God off for a while. No, that is not the way the gospel works. The gospel works when you say, I'm too broken. I'll never clean myself up. I need you. And you know what? When you draw near to him and you find out how beautiful he is, the spirit starts working at you to change your desires. And you're cleaned slowly but surely. Never perfect until glory And so then going on from there, you would go to the actual temple structure itself and you see all over the door the images of fruit and palms, Edenic, garden paradise, but those cherubim there to remind you, to remind the people of Solomon's day, no further. Like the cherubim that guarded Eden and set out, there are those cherubim again. When you went into the temple... To the right, you would see what was called the table of showbread. And God would have these 12 loaves representing the 12 different tribes of Israel. And all throughout the Bible, you know what this bread is called? It's called the bread of the presence. I love that. Literally, in the Hebrew, the word for presence is panim, it's faces. It's the bread of communion, the bread of of drawing near to him. Why does he put bread there? What God is saying is we chase satisfaction all over the place in our lives. We chase money and we chase power and we chase relationships and we chase reputation and promotions and all these different things. I want to be a better husband and I want to be this and that and maybe good things. God puts the bread of the presence in his temple because what he's saying to believers is I'm the one you need to look to to satisfy It's not going to be your husband. It's not going to be your wife. It's not going to be your career. Those are nice and they're wonderful, but you'll always just keep chasing for more. Never satisfied. Come and eat my bread. The bread of faces. The bread of my face. 
Be in intimate communion with me. Draw near to me and be satisfied. And you go to the next one and you find the golden lampstand across the way. And here's what provides light to the temple. And God is saying, yeah, you search for wisdom. You search for light. You search for enlightenment all over the place. And let me tell you, I am the source of your light. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Light. God is light, the Bible says. What does that mean? Light is radiant, active, warm. It brings heat. Light brings beauty. If I turned off the lights, everything in here goes dark. I turn them on, I see all the beautiful colors of your clothes. Light brings beauty. It reveals beauty. It It always overcomes darkness. It's the source of all life. And in the temple, we have this light to remind us, don't search for your light somewhere else. Don't find your wisdom in an earthly ideology or a political persuasion. You find your light in him, period. And then you move on from there. And next, right before the great temple veil, you have the altar of incense with the smoke going up. If you were raised Catholic like me, you remember the priest going around, cha-ching, cha-ching, with the little smoke thing, the censer. What does that smoke represent? It was to remind them that their prayers go up to God. So here's another piece. Yes, you find your atonement and you find your cleansing in him, in him. You find your satisfaction, the bread in him. You find your light, your truth in him. You find intimacy and prayer with him. Pray. You know in the gospel when Zechariah is in the temple, he's praying before the altar of incense when the angel Gabriel appeared to him. He's praying before this thing. Praying, seeking intimacy with the Lord. Speaking through this curtain, the temple veil, that when the tabernacle was built was four inches thick. No one was allowed to go beyond this, but the high priest once a year, none of us would make it. And if you went in without permission, death. What do you see stitched on those veils? The image of cherubim angels. You can't come in. You can pray at the altar of incense, but you can't come in here and no further. So the meaning of the temple, you get it? It's reminding us of Eden. It's reminding us of all the things we lose at the fall that God is now restoring to us. He is our atonement. He is our cleansing. He is our satisfaction. He's our light. He's our intimacy through prayer. But before we get beyond the temple veil, I'll I'll let you take a peek inside the temple veil. This is what's described in 1 Kings 6. These massive cherubim angels that look kind of like lions with wings would fill the whole room. And you see the, the palms in the background and you see other cherubim all over the place. And then that little box in the middle is called the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to get there for a moment. But before we go that far, hang with me. I want to describe what happens the one day a year when the high priest alone got to go in there. Hang on to these details. You might be able to see where I'm going before I'm done. You see, Leviticus 16 
and the Babylonian Talmud give us a picture of what happened on the Day of Atonement. Have you ever heard the Jewish calendar date, Yom Kippur? That's Hebrew for the Day of Atonement. And so one day a year, God would come to his people and say, okay, this is the Day of Atonement. The high priest is going to bring before me the blood of a sacrifice. And in the blood of that sacrifice, all the sins of the people of God, the people of Israel, are going to be forgiven. This was the high holy day of the Israelites. This was the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. So let me tell you what it, what it would have looked like. A week before the Day of Atonement, the high priest, the one who gets to go into here, well, first off, let's describe him. He's a man. He has to be an Israelite. He has to be from the tribe of Levi. He has to be from the line of Aaron, which is Moses' brother, the first high priest. And you just go down the list, and it excludes everyone in here. (laughs) We have no business. But the high priest, he had a shot. He could go in there. Very limited, select group of people to choose from. And so what happened is a week before, on Yom Kippur, the other priests would just read Scripture to him. Read, 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 read the passage about what happens on Yom Kippur. Read everything. And the idea was to so distract him that he couldn't possibly fall into sin. Because this was too important. On the morning of the great sacrifice, you read this in the Babylonian Talmuds, the daughters of Jerusalem would go all over the hills and throughout the city of Jerusalem, and they would be singing with joy and worship. The night before, the high priest was not allowed to go to sleep. So junior priests would stay around him all night going, "Uh, wake up, wake up. Because he wasn't allowed to go to sleep because they feared he might sin in his sleep. The high priest on the Day of Atonement would have five changes of clothing. Constantly being renewed, constantly doing all of these rituals. Hang with me on that. Now I want you to think, what are they hoping to accomplish? All this seriousness, all this pomp and circumstance, all this... They want to come into the presence of God to worship him. Think how seriously they took the privilege of coming before God. Do we? Did you prep your heart last night at all? (laughs) I mean, they took it so seriously. And so the high priest, after the five changes of clothes, it was so serious that they would take a sheet and they would hang it before him and he would strip naked and he would bathe in front of those who watched him to make sure that he was clean before he went into the holy place. He would sacrifice a bull for his own family and his own sins. And then he would take these two goats and they would cast lots to determine which goat would be sacrificed on the altar and which goat would have all the sins of Israel imputed to him and he would be sent off into the wilderness outside the city. One would be slain and the other escorted by a priest who at stations would be offered drinks and he would say no. Pretty amazing. And so once all that was done, the high priest would enter into the ark, into the most holy place, the holy of holies, where he would find the ark of the covenant. Again, these cherubim angels on it, right? So holy, you can't touch it as a human. And he would go to the lid and between those angels and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on what was called the mercy seat, that top cover. 
And then the last piece of Yom Kippur, which is kind of weird. Leviticus 16.23, we're told, Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments that he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he's to leave them there. And so when the high priest gets done with his work to atone for all the people, he takes off of his outer garment, these linen garments, leaves them folded in the most holy place, and he walks away. All of those elements of worship are still essential to us today. We need an altar. We need cleansing. We need bread that satisfies. We need light that gives truth. We need, desperately need prayer. And we need one, one man who can go before us beyond the veil to represent all the people to seek forgiveness, right? Buckle up. This is where it gets cool to me. The Gospel of John, the whole Gospel of John is laid out to tell you that Jesus has fulfilled this perfectly for you. You open up the Gospel of John. Now follow me because the entire Gospel of John is an architectural blueprint for the temple. Really cool. Really cool. Let's go. John 1. We got the bronze altar. John 1 in the Gospel of John Jesus shows up, and what does John the Baptist say when he sees him? He cries out from a distance, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who's going to be slain for us. you got to understand that before you move in to the rest of the gospel. Then you get to John 2. We're back to the labor, remember? Now let's just look at what happens in the gospel. Hang with me. In John 2, what's Jesus' first miracle? Turning water into wine. Well, what's interesting when you read that story is it's not just any water. It's, it's water from six stone jars that were used for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification. This kind of water. Cleansing water. And Jesus turns it to blood. What's he telling us? You want cleansing? Not water. It's the blood. The wine will represent the blood. That's where you find cleansing. What else does he do in John 2? He cleanses the temple. Hmm. John 3, baptism, new beginnings. John's out there baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing. John 4, you get Jesus who meets the Samaritan woman at a well and wipes away her shame, cleanses her. John 5, he's healing at the pools of Bethesda. You catch it? John 6, now we go to the inside, right? We get to the table of showbread. Watch John 6. You get Jesus, what's he doing? He's performing miracles. What's he doing in this miracle? He's feeding 5,000 people with bread and fish. And what does he say? I am the bread of life. How many baskets does he have left over? Hmm, 12. Interesting. And he goes on and he teaches at the the Feast of Booths. Then you get to John 8 and it's Jesus. And his big emphasis in this sermon is going to be, I am the light of the world. And he heals the, the man who's born blind and he brings him sight. And then, guess what? Then the rest is Jesus' march to Jerusalem to atone. He's going to raise Lazarus. He's going to preach about how the Spirit of God, the Spirit that they don't have access to, that's behind that curtain, is coming to dwell in you. 
He offers in John 17 what we know at the whole chapters of prayer. And what's it called? The high priestly prayer. And he leaves the high priestly prayer, goes across the Kidron Valley on the night that he's betrayed. He's going to be arrested. And then all the kangaroo court nonsense of his trial began. But what's going on in this story? This is why I wanted to tell you about Yom Kippur. You see, Jesus, when he's at this point, one week before his preparation, he comes into the city and he begins to teach the word of God. It's not read to him. He's delivering it. On the night of the arrest, do you remember what's going on? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's begging the junior disciples around him, help me to stay awake, just like the high priest with his junior priest. But what are they doing? They can't. They're falling asleep. They're leaving him utterly alone to carry this burden on his own. Jesus isn't bathed like we imagine. He's bathed in the spit of our contempt. He's stripped naked, Before the crowds, but no sheet to cover him. The daughters of Jerusalem are not singing on the hills. As he's being escorted, carrying his cross, they're weeping in the streets. The Roman centurions are not, they're not casting lots to determine where the sin gets imputed. They're casting lots to determine who gets Jesus' garment. And... The two goats, one being slain and one taken outside of the city to bear all the sin of the people of God. Jesus says, mine. I'll be the one slain. I'll be the one taken outside the city. I will be the one who bears the sin of all the people to atone for them. Do you get what's going on here? And oh, by the way, guess how many times Jesus will change clothes in the passion narrative? Five. His clothing. He'll go before Herod and Herod will mock him in an elegant robe. Then he's back in his clothing and he goes before the Roman soldiers and they dress him up in a scarlet robe and they beat him and they put crowns on his head and they're smacking him and mocking him. That's four. But Jesus will go to a cross with no clothing, bearing the shame that we deserve. And when his lifeless body is taken down from that cross, he'll get his fifth. The burial linens, the burial shroud. Jesus is our great high priest. He's accomplished it all. He's fulfilled all of the temple. And you know what happens when he dies? The temple veil ripped those cherubim angels that said, Here no further are dispatched. You now have access to God because the sword of the cherubim fell on him. How wonderful a savior is he. And so on the morning of the resurrection, remember Jesus said, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. He's the temple, he's the fulfillment of all of it. And the resurrection is the restoration, the rebuilding of this temple. And so what do we find on the morning of the resurrection? Get this. Then Simon Peter came following him. They've heard from Mary that there's no one in the tomb. So Simon and Peter, Peter and John, excuse me, raced to the tomb. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb first. And he saw, oh, these linens 
lying there. Remember what the high priest would do after he makes atonement? He takes off the linens, folds them up, and leaves them in the most holy place and walks away. What does Peter see? The linen cloths lying there. Oh my goodness, our high priest has done it. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up by itself. And then the disciples went their way to their homes, and Mary Magdalene is left bawling outside. She doesn't get it. And so it says that she stooped weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white. You know where I'm going with this? She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? What does she see? She sees an angel over here and an angel over here with these bloodied linens in between. Do you you hear it? Angel, angel, the blood of atonement. Let me get the next image. That's what she sees. You know what that looks a lot like? The Ark of the Covenant. That's what she's seeing? You mean to tell me that the fulfillment of the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, was experienced not by a man, not by a straight-up Israelite, not by someone from the tribe of Levi, not someone from the tribe of Aaron, but a woman, and not just any woman, a shameful demoniac with a sinful, shattered past, probably a prostitute. And God lets Peter and John come in and leave. Doesn't show them this. But the lowest rung of society walks in and looks and he says, there's my high priest. There's the one I want to be able to come inside the true holy of holies, where the real Ark of the Covenant is, where sin is atoned for once and for all time. I want her to see it. And I want you to know she is the first to see it. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest. There is no one on a bottom rung of society. They are all exalted as sons and daughters of the king. Brought up from their slavery to royalty. To reign alongside of him. This is a sweet, when you think about the temple, don't dismiss it as 3,000-year-old traditions. It is a building that is prophetically declaring and pointing to and reveling in what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish for every person in here if you call on his name. Do you? Do you call on his name? Is he the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world for you? Does he cleanse you? Is he, is he your bread of life? Is he the light of your truth? Is, do you have intimate communion with him? Do you go beyond the veil because you're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ and now you're worthy to stand before God Almighty? And do you bask in his presence? Have you been given admission back into Eden? It's only through Christ. If you have not accepted him yet, Grab hold of him. Let his blood cleanse you like nothing in this world can. Take the freedom that he offers and all the benefits of that salvation. Embrace your true temple. Let's pray.
Thanks, Sam. And thank you, friends, for listening to this week's podcast. We hope that you enjoyed your time with us. If you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of Out of Water by visiting our website at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available for both Apple and Android devices, and you can find it by searching for Rio Vista Community Church in the App Store of your choice. Sam and I will be back next week with more from the Desiring the Kingdom series as we look at 1 Kings chapter 7 and 8, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.